This is The View From Somewhere. I'm producer Ramona Martinez. Today's episode deals with right-wing media and does include some explicitly racist voices and conspiracy theories. It also features brilliant commentators Nicole Hemmer, Jay Rosen, and Kevin Young. If you like what you hear, this podcast is serialized. This is the 10th episode. We recommend returning to the start and listening from there. Also, we're back on tour. Be sure to check out our website, viewfromsomewhere.com, for upcoming events in Charlottesville, Amherst, and Cambridge, Mass. Thanks, and enjoy the show. The Bush administration has invested our tax dollars in pornographic and blasphemous art. Too shocking to show. This so-called art has glorified homosexuality, exploited children, and perverted the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This is The View From Somewhere. I'm Lewis Raven-Wallace. That was a 1992 ad for Pat Buchanan for president, in which he was actually referring to, or going at, a documentary that aired on public television, Marlon Riggs' Tongues Untied, a kind of experimental film about black gay male life. Brother to brother, 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 brother to brother. It was produced in 1989. Mother, do you know I roam alone at night? Wearing colognes, tight pants, chains of gold. Searching for men willing to come back to candlelight. I'm not scared. Tongues Untied was raw and strange and packed with what I would call truth about queer life. And this film was so offensive to conservatives, they got two thirds of the stations around the country not to air it. And then they talked about the fact that any PBS station had shown it for years. This is Senator Jesse Helms still talking about it in 1992. CPP gave a grant to a group called Point of View, which had turned, bought a program called Tongues United. He got the name wrong, but whatever. Tongues United is kind of a cute idea, too. Now, this program, without any question whatsoever, blatantly promoted homosexuality as an acceptable lifestyle, it showed what to call them. I'll be kind. It showed homosexual men dancing around naked and put that out on this public television. Marlon Riggs gave a beautiful response to Jesse Helms later in a documentary about his life called I Shall Not Be Removed. Tongues Untied needed to embrace the truth and tell the truth of who we are, not apologizing and not diluting to make the experience of black gay men palatable for other people to consume. I'm hoping that Jesse Helms, and what is more what Jesse Helms stands for in this country, which is a refusal to look 
reality in the face and deal with it. That that day will come when we will get beyond that and we'll start to examine the truths of ourselves. It stands out to me that Marlon Riggs here is talking a lot about truth, defending the truths of ourselves, he says. And I think he means subjective truth, the felt and experienced truth of who he was and how the country saw him. By the early 90s, the organized right, which attacked Riggs, had gotten really, really good at undermining other people's lived reality, even completely concocting stories that served their needs. Pat Buchanan, for example, dabbled in Holocaust denial, claimed the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery, and once said AIDS was God's punishment for being gay. All invented stories that justify violence against already vulnerable people, a common thread in the disinformation of our day. So how do we push back on attacks on the truths of ourselves? And how do we distinguish between personal truth, subjective truth, and mealy-mouthed Pat Buchanan bullshit without falling into the gatekeeping around supposedly objective truth that we're all about breaking down on this podcast? There are no easy answers. James Baldwin, a swimmer in the sea of truth, once wrote, expose the question, the answer hides. We'll come back to that, but keep it in mind. Expose the question, the answer hides. First of all, let's be real. Disinformation and misinformation are a big problem that we have to contend with. Rush Limbaugh was a major leader in the early days of conservative talk radio the bigoted, propagandistic news that went after Marlon Riggs and Anita Hill in the 90s. And Limbaugh just won the Medal of Freedom. Here he is in 2015 talking about how feminism is just ugly women's revenge. Feminism was established so as to allow unattractive women easier access to the mainstream of society. And even to this day, people poo-poo this and say it's insensitive, how could you possibly say something like that? Well, because I mean it. He and his allies have perpetuated all kinds of disinformation, mostly in the form of cultural fantasies. The fantasy of powerful, man-hating feminists. The militant feminists who have made every abortion, regardless the cost, mandatory, who have made it clear that that's the sole reason they exist, to make every abortion possible can happen. Over the years, militant feminazism has backfired on them. The fantasy of climate change skepticism. You know, look, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. The evidence is in that we're now in a period of global cooling. Most scientists, but even the scientists that are global warming alarmists, they, they, they don't have, their pride will not allow them to recognize that they made a mistake, so they're not going to say we were wrong. The truly fantastical idea of reverse racism that white Christians are persecuted. You can't win. And why is it? Because if you are a white human that loves America and happens to be a Christian, forget about it, Jack. You are the only one that doesn't have uh, a, uh, a political action committee for you. 
And importantly, these guys paint themselves as objective news sources. Fox News launched in 1996 literally under the slogan, Fair and Balanced, and then gave platforms to all the views you just heard. And a lot of people trust these programs. In a 2019 survey of U.S. adults, Fox beat out NPR for the percentage of people who find it credible. So how did we get here? We know a person who knows a thing or two about that question. Nicole Hemmer. It wasn't like my parents were listening to it nonstop. But because I just I grew up in a conservative area, the language and the sounds of conservative media were there. She grew up in southern Indiana, and she resisted conservatism even more so after she started grad school for history in 2004. And my dad, who's conservative, when I came home that from the first year of graduate school, we were in the car one day, and he turns the radio on, and the Rush Limbaugh show is playing. And he's like, my goal for this summer is to get you to vote for George W. Bush. And all summer long, whenever we were in the car, we would listen to Rush Limbaugh and Laura Ingram and Monica Crowley and Sean Hannity. And it it didn't necessarily change my politics, but I became really fascinated by, in a way, my dad's logic that if I listened to these radio programs, I would change the way that I thought about politics and ultimately change the way that I voted. And that to me was absolutely fascinating. Hemmer got interested in this power right-wing media had to literally convert people to a whole worldview. Now she's the author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics. She says the organized right-wing media we know now got its start after World War II, during the time some call the Age of Consensus which was really mainstream, white consensus in government and media on a few points. Communism was bad, government was good, capitalism was best. This was also the golden age of so-called objective journalism. But the centrist politics and journalism of the time, the sphere of legitimate controversy, left out a lot of people. People of color, most women, and of course voices on the far left and the far right. And all these groups began to push back. Conservatives were much more effective because they had access to so many more traditional forms of power, right? They had access to money, they had social respect, they were white, they were male, they were tied to corporations. Like there were all of these ways in which they had traditional forms of power. And so they were able to take this criticism of American politics and American media and really turn it into the backbone of a successful conservative movement. So a lot of people were dissatisfied in the post-war era with the supposedly objective news media, but white conservatives had the resources and access to really effectively attack it. And they came up with a pretty brilliant narrative, a strategy to undermine trust in mainstream media still in use today. It's just three words, liberal media bias. That narrative went something like this. Look, objective media aren't really objective. They're just liberals pretending to be objective. Fake news. So what you have to do in order to, like, 
pick true media is to figure out the politics of who's delivering your media. You need to understand no one is objective. And so if they're not telling you they're conservative, then they're actually secretly liberal. So trust us, because we are going to tell you what our politics are. Our politics are the same as your politics, and you should listen to us. And what we say is not only right-wing, but it's right. Believe us, because we are like you. And that's where there's also a lot of white identity politics at play. Starting in the 1950s, conservatives pushed the idea that there was an overlooked, silent majority being left out of so-called liberal elite conversations about politics and culture. Sound familiar? Ideas like the silent majority, ideas like um, the real America, those ideas are very much coded as white America. When there is discussion of violence or crime or these kinds of things that are posed as threats to quote-unquote real Americans, that's understood as those Black inner-city people are the sources of violence and disruption in American life, and you good white suburbanites are the ones who we need to protect. The accusations of liberal media bias against the silent majority really took off during the Nixon administration, an era of backlash against civil rights, and then gained even more strength in the 80s. Conservative activists were organized, well-funded, and through a growing network of talk shows and pressure organizations, they openly pushed for mainstream media to include more and more of their views. They claimed the media must avoid liberal bias by making more space for far-right ideology. And what we end up seeing as a result of that is that American journalists begin to change their practices. They still argue that they are being objective, but the way that they present that objectivity is not to echo or to um, simply repeat a set of consensus politics, but to say, okay, we're going to give you balance. We're going to put a liberal on air, and we're going to put a conservative on air. And you, the listener or reader or watcher, can figure out for yourself who's right. So conservative media activists framed everything, even facts and truth, as being about politics, left versus right. That's super important because it's not just a shift in arguments about media, but it's a, a shift in arguments about how we know things. And the mainstream media, especially on TV, began to do more and more of this performance of balance, left versus right, in every political story. Rather than saying, here's what we think is true, and here's how we got here. Live from Washington. Crossfire. On the left, Geraldine Ferraro. Michael Kins, Bob Becker. On the right, Pat Buchanan. And we're still seeing that false balance and false equivalency stuff today. Journalists are afraid to weigh in on facts for fear of being called biased, even when they have good evidence. Do we call this statement a lie? Do we call this statement racist? That is something that a skeptical, fact-based journalism can answer in a way that balanced journalism cannot. Because if balanced journalism says, well, we'll get a liberal to tell you whether it's racist, and we'll get you a conservative to tell you whether it's racist, 
the journalism isn't doing you any real service. Crossfire. We've got two prime specimens from the Animal House of American Journalism, talk radio. Well, I don't think you should just let people burn the flag, but I don't see any reason to make it against the law either. I'll... Plus, the left-right crossfire, all the yelly white men, was popular stuff. What many people see as another example of the value base in this society uh, that decaying and, and, and being attacked. So I just want to pause to say I find it so fascinating that conservatives initially in the 50s had a critique of objectivity not all that far from ours on this show. It was an impossible ideal that actually just reflected status quo consensus thinking. But then instead of striving for subjective media that honestly tries to reflect truths in the world, they developed this powerful strategy of doublespeak. On the one hand, nothing and no one is objective, and that's impossible. On the other hand, you can trust us, not because of our methods, but because we're not biased liberals. And it's no secret that this strategy started to make a lot of people a lot of money. Right-wing writer Matt Labash, in a 2003 interview with journalismjobs.com, said, quote, It's a great way to have your cake and eat it, too. Criticize other people for not being objective. Be as subjective as you want. It's a great little racket, unquote. Have your cake and eat it too. A great little racket. It's working for someone, but at whose expense? Coming up, what if white supremacy is the original fake news? Hey, it's Ramona. Just wanted to remind y'all that The View From Somewhere is on tour here and there. Lewis will be at the Virginia Festival of the Book, March 19th and 20th. And Lewis and I will be together at Amherst on March 23rd. And Porter Square Books in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, March 24th. Check out viewfromsomewhere.com slash speaking to get deets. And uh, guess what? There's no fundraising breaks anymore. This is our last one. Thanks to Kickstarter supporters. We love you. Yay! But if you do want a signed book or one of Billy Dee's rad posters of Marlon Riggs or Marvell Cook or Ruben Salazar or Ida B. Wells, you can still donate online or buy them in person at one of our events. Hope to see y'all at one of those and love you. Viewfromsomewhere.com. Thanks. Listen, there's a lot of garbage in U.S. media about race. And for purposes of today, we decided to just pick one of those garbage piles to focus on as a sort of case study. Today's steaming heap of trash is birtherism, the conspiratorial accusation that President Barack Obama was born outside the United States. They say they have seen this document, that he was born in the United States. That's good enough for them. A birth certificate is not even close. A certificate of live birth is not even signed by anybody. I saw his. I read it very carefully. Doesn't have a serial number. Doesn't have a signature. He spent $2 million in legal fees trying to get That was Donald J. Trump in 2011 on The Rush Limbaugh Show. By the 2000s, these far-right conservatives had huge platforms. 
and they were having their cake and eating it too. But then in an attempt to appear, quote, objective, mainstream media would respond to stories like birtherism by debating the issue, no matter how completely concocted it was. Here's a CNN host in 2011 after Obama released his birth certificate. Joseph Farah, CEO of WND.com, is a conservative journalist and Tea Party ally who once launched a public campaign demanding proof of the president's birthplace. He says he's gratified the certificate's been released, but it's not enough for him. Farah now says because Mr. Obama's father was a Kenyan citizen... The liberal media bias strategy had worked completely. And this is important. Claiming objectivity and balance in response, even fact-checking these guys, was making less and less of a difference. Why? The view from nowhere is not very um, sturdy. It's easily debunked. You know, it's kind of a, it's sort of like a soft, white underbelly. Jay Rosen is a journalism professor at NYU and has thought a lot about this stuff. Like me, he thinks objectivity is not the right frame for rebuilding trust. He says that ship has already sailed. If you're trying to generate authority by saying, I don't have a view, I don't have a philosophy, I don't have a starting point, I don't have any assumptions here, I don't have a stake, I don't have an interest, so trust me because I am uninvolved and people don't trust that claim, you can't get them to trust that claim by insisting more strictly on objectivity. And so the very idea that I don't have a point of view here has become suspicious itself. And when the audience or the public gets to that point, objectivity in a way stops functioning. And instead, it flips around and becomes the kerosene for criticism. And is liberal bias real? Well, um, a bias is real because the original claim of objectivity to remove all bias from the news is an impossible thing. Um, journalism always has starting points. It has uh, assumptions built into it. Um, it has frames. You can't uh, unframe the facts. Um, and so when journalists started to base their authority on a claim to remove all bias from the news, they ground their authority in something that could never be. And this is one of the weaknesses of objectivity is that it's so easy to find contrary evidence to that claim. Mm -hmm. And you've also talked about uh, right-wing media um, sort of creating, fabricating this reality that um, you've said that there's no such thing as a fact check uh, or that fact fact checking doesn't matter. What, what does that mean? Well, verification is central to journalism. It means taking something that might be true and nailing it down with facts, with evidence. Um, get the transcript, get the data, um, interview the participants. That's verification. It's, did this really happen? Here's how we know. And that is basic to how journalists do their job. It's the most important thing they do. Fact-checking is an extension of that. But verification is the discipline in which journalism is located. Verification is in reverse. 
is when you take something that's already been nailed down and you introduce doubt about it, and that doubt causes reaction, controversy, anger, furor, rage. And then you can use those reactions to power your political movement. And this is how Donald Trump skipped on to the political scene in um, 2015, is he began to make himself into the biggest birther in the United States. So birtherism was a classic example of partisan media taking something seemingly factual, replacing that with doubt, cynicism, and rage. And the rage was fueled, of course, by racism. In his essay, The Artist's Struggle for Integrity, truth diver James Baldwin says, quote, the poets, by which I mean all artists, are finally the only people who know the truth about us. Soldiers don't, statesmen don't, priests don't, union leaders don't, only poets. So to cut through all the confusion about truth and fake news, I think there's no better person to end up with than poet Kevin Young. Birtherism is just one example of what he refers to as bunk, or the hoax. I think the hoax in general has changed over time, but from its start in American life, it's often been tied to questions of race. Young is the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, poetry editor at The New Yorker, and the author of the brilliant 2017 book, Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News. He says many of the earliest hoaxes were tied up with race. And he argues race itself is a sort of hoax that justifies systems of inequality. Well, it's a strange thing where race is, we know, not a scientific concept. It's a construction. It, too, is something fake pretending to be real, like the hoax is. But it doesn't mean that racism isn't uh, is fake. Racism is very real, and I think it's we see even now it can be hard to combat exactly because it's built on this falsehood. And I think right now, you know, it's not an accident that we have all these deep divisions around race, around uh, questions of immigration and who belongs and who's a citizen, uh, and we also have all this fakery. Popular falsehoods, fake news in the U.S., have often been tied to white supremacy and structural oppression. The story that people of color are in some way inferior to white people was presented as scientific and objective to justify slavery. Today, stories like birtherism, the hype around dangerous immigrants or super predators, rationalize structural inequality. But Young says the problem isn't just that some people are out there telling these lies. It's not just that people are hoaxing more, it's also that people are accusing other people of things that are true to be hoaxes and labeling things that are provably true uh, fake news. And that is really troubling because the news cycle has developed slower than that happens. So as soon as uh, people come back and say, well, actually, let me show you how it's true, there's another thing that is being called fake. Pundits, particularly but not only on the right, 
are fomenting doubt and cynicism about whether we can trust anyone else. Young calls this the colonization of doubt. But in a weird way, there, there's this kind of doubt that is almost, as I quote uh, the poet Mary Carr saying, is like the American religion, you know. And doubt is something that we um, take great pride in, you know. And instead of um, believing, it's like, well, you know, let's, let's just doubt each other constantly. And that mistrust, I think, leads to misinformation. And um, its colonization is that it's kind of been weaponized now. Doubt has become the exercise not of curiosity, but of mistrust, habitual, deep mistrust of one another. Doubt is, I think, you know, so different than skepticism, if that makes sense. I think skepticism is, huh, I, I want to believe that, trust but verify, or, you know, a kind of examination of, of not only is someone saying something true, but what I really think. And I think that doubt uh, doesn't do that. It only is one way. It's like, you have to impress me um, with the truth. And in fact, if it doesn't fit what I believe, then, you know, not only do I doubt it, I can't believe it. So he says the problem with these hoaxes, with birtherism and Pizzagate and the so-called migrant caravan, isn't that they're subjective, or even just that they are all falsehoods. It's that they're designed to undermine truth, to sow mistrust in all of our truths. Put more simply, the trouble with the racist right-wing crap and the liberal both sidesism in response isn't subjectivity. It's that it's bullshit, it's bunk, and bullshit begets bullshit. So this was a breakthrough for me. We've had fake news for as long as we've had news. White supremacy was based entirely on it. And maybe there's no way to silence or stop the fakers. We can also fact check them until the sun goes down. There will still be Russian bots and Trump telling lies. The bigger problem is the spin that says we can't believe anything or trust anyone. The colonization of doubt itself. Who benefits from that? Political parties and corporations, not people, not communities. Claiming objectivity can't save us from this because it's not a problem of proof or evidence, but a cultural problem of trust and connection. Still, what do we do about all this? Kevin Young talks in Bunk about this idea that truth isn't an absolute or a relative, but a muscle. It's a skill, like sailing, or even more like swimming, not an island on a map that we just have to get to. So how do we build that muscle, relearn that skill? I think we have to listen um, to each other in many ways. Um, rebuilding that muscle that is truth, um, I think is, is really takes time, but it also takes, oddly it takes a bit of a leap of faith, but also uh, engaging in each other honestly. And I think that's really hard right now. You know, think places we're at, 
online or, or don't reward long thought and you know self-examination they uh, reward like attacks and and sort of consequences Ugh, tell me about it i think about twitter watching people deliver decisive statements the constant attacks i hate this kind of shit but it's also part of the currency of our industry clickbait strong statements being sure vulnerable subjectivity and close listening don't necessarily sell but they still matter because trust still matters i think that in terms of uh, how we can rebuild that is going back to you know our own personal truths but also the ways we can connect to each other's truths um, and I'm saying truths um, because I think in some ways these are about our own perspectives but I also do think there it isn't something relative you know uh, slavery happened you know the, the events that we sometimes are arguing over they happened so we have to kind of get past the arguing over if and into like how and what and what does it mean. So there's not just one truth or one authoritative way of seeing, but journalists still should seek truths, plural, cobbled together from various viewpoints. With time and resources and an honest devotion to the craft, those practices can still make a difference in how we understand each other and the world. And this is so different than punditry and bullshit and superficial both sidesism. It occurs to me that if truth is a muscle or a skill like swimming, it's something we can all exercise and learn. So what if our journalism could be an antidote to cynicism, to the colonization of doubt? What about stories that help us ask better questions, that help us become better swimmers, navigating the multiplicities and complexities of truth in the world, going deep? Still, people ask me all the time when I give public talks, how do we know what's true and whom to trust? They want answers, a way to tell for sure. Here's the thing, and it's not an easy pill to swallow. We don't know. Answers, being sure of things, that's the currency of much of our stupid, messed up media today. Trump cashes in on it all the time. Fake news, he tweets out with confidence. Headlines blast us with statements of sureness. Everything you know about X is wrong, or Hillary lied, or so-and-so ahead in the polls. Answers are like tweets, temporary, short-lived, often wrong. And there might be facts that we can verify to the best of our ability, evidence that we can show, exercising our truth muscles to try to understand what these bits of evidence mean. But there's no island of objective truth to return to. There was never such a thing. We have to learn to swim and keep swimming, encountering multiple truths as we go studying the evidence, changing our perspective, diving deeper even as the light changes and refracts. Remember that James Baldwin quote, expose the question, the answer hides. Expose the question, 
Or put another way, build the truth muscle. Seems like a good enough idea, but how to actually do it? For the rest of the series, we'll be hearing from truth swimmers today who embrace their subjectivity and their sense of purpose. Next time on The View From Somewhere. It was just never a question for me that I was writing from a place of radical subjectivity. And that also that if I were to assume the voice of objectivity, what I was actually assuming was a white, cisgender, like normative, voice, and it was not a voice that I wanted to adopt. I talk with author Meredith Toulousen on trans journalism and radical subjectivity. This podcast is distributed by Critical Frequency and produced by Ramona Martinez. Our editor for this episode is Carla Murphy. Billy D creates our art. Roxana Bendezu does our social media. Our theme songs by Doug Bodick and additional music by Poddington Bear. Special thanks on this episode to John Bewin of Scene on Radio for helping us get some much-needed tape, and to Mariel Rukeyser, James Baldwin, Jessa Ray, and Catherine Edgerton for swimming in the sea of multiple truths and coming up sometimes to tell us about it. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. A homosexual man dancing around naked. Ha, 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 ha.